0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is my good friend, Dr. Harlan Ullman, a retired United States Navy captain, strategist, and prolific author who has just finished his 11th book, The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad how massive attacks of disruption became the looming existential danger to a divided nation and the world at large. He is also the chairman of the Killowan Group consultancy. Harlan, Thanks very much for joining us.
1: Vago, my pleasure to be with you again.
0: Indeed, it's always uh, always an honor and pleasure welcoming you back on the program. Uh, And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and indeed uh, these kinds of uh, conversations that we're having with Harlan today. And be sure to catch up on our interviews from... The Surface Navy Association's annual symposium last week, where our coverage was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Missiles and Defense. Aside from our interviews, check out our CAVUS Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris CAVUS and our producer, Chris Cervello, who took their weekly podcast daily. Don't miss that coverage. And also check out the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things, a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, Harlan, uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, you know, at the heart of your book is is mad, but not the mus- uh, mutual assured destruction um, uh, concept that was a, a core tenant of the Cold War—the threat that mutual, of mutual thermonuclear destruction, ultimately keeping the peace um, between uh, two uh, rival powers. You've come up with a new mad concept: massive attacks of destruction. Why is this new MAD so dangerous and actually in many respects, even more dangerous to the fundamental fabrics of democracy as you see it?
1: Uh, There have been in the last 50 or 40 years, two tectonic shifts in international politics. Obviously the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 was the first and the second was September 11th and the attacks on the trade towers in New York and the Pentagon here in Washington. After the attacks of September 11th, it struck me that the international system had profoundly changed, but I wasn't completely sure how Um, lesser powers, non-powers were becoming as important as traditional states were. But it really wasn't until the beginning of 2020 and the onset of the pandemic of COVID that everything clarified. And what became obvious to me was that a fifth horseman of the apocalypse in addition to war destruction, uh, pestilence and damage, um, was the writer who was carrying an arm with mad for massive attacks of disruption. And what had caused this ironically was a combination of globalization, technology, and the diffusion of power. Because as societies became more advanced, they became far more vulnerable, fragile, and susceptible to disruption. Uh, during the height of the pandemic, we lost our internet, and we lost our cell phone service. Supposing we lost access to water, electrical power, or food, all of the things which happened during the course of 2020 and since. And so when you take a look at what really is one of the major problems facing society writ large, it's disruption. It's beyond pandemics, it's beyond uh, technology, but it's a combination of both man-made and acts of nature that are disrupting us. And I think unless or until we put this at least as a par with our traditional challenges of states such as China and Russia, we will never be fully prepared to deal with what I believe is a greater threat because it's already occurring of massive attacks of disruption.
0: Um, Let me. um, I I wanna get to um, all of the other subordinate elements of that and how this actually changes how we need to perhaps look at what the nature of conflict is uh, going forward, especially among uh, great powers, right? I mean, winning without fighting effectively has always been uh, a a goal if you can achieve it. You've identified seven major disruptors. What are those seven?
1: In addition to pandemics and technology, the first and I think most dangerous is failed and failing government. And we see it right here in Washington, DC. We can't agree on basic things. We can't agree on the pandemic, we can't agree on inflation, we can't agree on governance. So failed and failing government, which is not unique to the United States, this in many ways is uh, almost universal. Second is climate change. Uh, You cannot deny that the globe is getting warmer and, and ice packs are melting. And I think unless we deal more centrally with this, this could be potentially existential. Next is cyber, and you marry cyber with social media where you can have deep fakes and you can use the combination to be massively disruptive. We saw, for example, the cutting off of power because of cyber, of meat and fuel to the Northeast of the United States. We see cyber attacks that have taken down countries like Estonia. Next interestingly is Terra and Terra now has a far greater domestic component than it ever had. Debt, uh, the United States debt is about $30 trillion or one and a half times uh, our GDP and debt is just increasing. What happens when interest rates go up to three, four, 5%, a quarter of the budget could be used to service debt. And I think one of the more interesting disruptors happens to be drones, uh, not only in warfare, but imagine in the future, when drones become a fifth amendment issue, when for example, You wanna have a drone bodyguard, which could be in the form of a robot. It could be a form of a a UAV, an unmanned aerial vehicle, which has got some kind of weapon with it. How do we deal with that? But more importantly, if you go back to January 6th, supposing the rioters were equipped with a handful of drones and each one had a stack of dynamite, stick of dynamite, they could have destroyed the capital. So these seven disruptors, and of course some of them are different and unequal, need to be dealt with. And unless we put this on a par and a footing equal to how we're dealing with Russia and China, very likely it's going to be that this, this, these disruptors are going to do far more damage to the United States and the world at large than any state actor.
0: Um, as, as usual, Harlan, you, know, you you have a knack for being able to uh, uh, describe uh, the problem. Uh, I want to get to what the solution, the potential solutions are, especially when Um, elements of U.S. society are divided against themselves, right? I mean, so uh, there are people who are willing to accept help from a foreign power to get their side elected. Um, The uh, Russians were... Uh, right. I mean, you, you've been very thoughtful in explaining that, you know, the Soviet Union, for example, uh, as, as well as the United Kingdom uh, were uh, intimately involved in shaping American public uh, opinion, whether it was uh, during the Cold War or in the years before World War II or during World War Two. Um, but we find ourselves in a very different different spot where uh, active measures on uh, the part of Russia, for example, has helped steer the American electorate and parts of the American electorate are okay with that, uh, ultimately. How, how do you manage, so what is your sort of systemic sure. answer to this systemic problem let that... me
1: Let me give you a little bit more background on the organization of the book and just take a minute which will help guide sure. what, how, how I'm gonna answer your question. Um, the first chapter talks about how the fifth horseman and MAD arose in a 51% divided country. And then I talk about the seven disruptors and how even more disruptive they're going to be. I then have three chapters on China and Russia, which I hope people will read carefully because this is unconventional analysis in which I believe we do not fully or remotely understand what's driving China and Russia. And in too many ways, we've labeled them for threats without being able to divine the specific threats and without looking at their weaknesses, which are plenty. I also have a chapter that compares the pandemics of 1918 and 1920 to today. And what's really interesting is that following 1918, 1920, the United States entered into the greatest economic boom in its history. And if we were smart, and one of my prime recommendations is calls for a national infrastructure investment fund, when this pandemic ends, we could do the same, but we're not on the course to do that. And then the last three chapters are the most important because I talk about what are the solutions and what are the recommendations, beginning with a national national Renaissance, and then talking about new national security and defense strategies and smarter foreign policies. And they begin, first of all, by dismissing this notion of global competition with great powers, because we're not able to define it. And as you know, the last national security strategy and defense strategy said we have to contain, deter, and if war comes, defeat, a number of powers headed by China and Russia. But nobody ever said, what does this mean to compete? How are you going to deter? We've not been doing very well in deterring Russia and Ukraine, or China with Belt and Road, or militarizing tiny islands in the South China Seas or building up its navy. And so I argue that that's the wrong construct. And of course, nobody has an idea if war came, how are you are going to win a war, as you pointed out, if it used nuclear or thermonuclear weapons would be destructive as we know it of mankind. So I believe we need to prevent, and prevent not only deals with state powers, but it also deals with the seven disruptors and preventing to the degree that we can uh, massive attacks of disruption. Now, one of the big differences between the old man of mutual assured destruction and massive attacks of disruption is that uh, war could be, nuclear war could be deterred. Uh, The new man of massive attacks of disruption cannot be deterred, and that's... (laughs) a real issue that we have to understand. So you've got to prevent, then you have to defend. And I'm talking about defending against disruption. I'm also defending against the aggressive actions of Russia or China, active measures as you point out or more kinetic means. And then finally we have to engage. Where we are failing is not engaging with China or Russia or other parties, Iran for example, to see if we can bring back the joint comprehensive plan of action. And so that to me, uh, Vago is the overarching strategy. Then I go into both organizational changes. I'd like to note that the nation, before, the, before the National Security Act that was first passed in 1947, and after the War of 1812, the United States never lost a war fought. But after 1947, and I don't include the second the Iraq War, which I believe was more a campaign than a war, the United States has not won a war. Now that's an interesting observation, which is truthful, but the point is we are badly disorganized. If you take a look at the White House and the executive branch with 15 cabinets, uh, we have a department of agriculture. How many farmers do we have in the United States? They're not statistically uh, uh, pertinent. What do we have? Where's our department of information, our department of technology, or our department of uh, digital issues? We don't have it. And so when you take a look at the organization of the executive branch, it's flawed. The same thing is true with Congress. You take a look at how Congress is organized with overlapping committees, uh, both on the appropriations and the authorization side, and there are just too many. But more importantly, the Defense Department is still organized around the National Security Act, the uh, UCP, uh, Unified Command Plan, and Goldwater-Nichols. I think both of those are creatures of the 20th century, and they need to be changed and changed dramatically. I'll give you a few ideas. First, I think the Joint Chiefs of Staff must be separated from their roles as service chiefs. So we'd have two different groups and the role of the Joint Chiefs would be strategic to advise the president and the Joint Chiefs and the chairman need to be in the chain of command to hold them accountable. I think in terms of the unified command plan, when we've got 11 uh, regional and and, uh, functional commanders, far too many. I think we should have a Northern Command that has uh, becomes a, Western Hemisphere Command and Eastern Command, a Western Command and a Central Command. Uh, I think we've got to slim down and we have to do away with Goldwater Nichols or updating it because, first of all, because of how it is stressed jointness, it's basically taken the services and the service chiefs uh, out of the chain of command and it has heightened the the so-called combatant commanders to give them far more authority than they need without anybody being able to adjudicate. So I think the balance is wrong. Uh, Those are some of the initial recommendations I would make. I think, however, the most important one that is uh, in the better interest of the country is for what I call a national infrastructure investment fund. Now, we've already appropriated something on the order of of $1.9 trillion to to Recovery Act and $1.2 trillion for infrastructure. But the current infrastructure law that's been passed is flawed because there's no oversight and there's no coordination. So you could get Virginia building a bridge or something into Washington, D.C., and Washington, D.C., building a road. The two are not going to join up. My view is to have a public-private partnership in which we would offer 30-year bonds at 2% above prime to be invested in uh, to improve our infrastructure writ large. We can go into what that means, but people have a general idea. They'd be paid off over 30 years with user fees, tolls, et cetera, et cetera, I would fold in the $1.2 trillion into this fund to come up with something along the lines of three or $4 trillion with an oversight board that would have both public and private membership to ensure that we are getting our money's worth. Now, for people who say this will not work, uh, during the financial crisis of 2008, we put in place the TARP, Troubled Assets Relief Program, which actually not only succeeded in saving the financial system, but returned, returned billions and billions of dollars to the treasury. Now, I think it's not too late to look at this public-private partnership, because in my mind, given the nature of failed and failing government, the only way we're going to be able to improve our infrastructure is through some kind of private-public partnership in which the private sector has got to play a key role, particularly in oversight. Those are some of the uh, recommendations. But as I said, I've got three chapters and we can go into uh, greater detail, certainly in terms of what I'm arguing for a porcupine defense in Europe, and a modified porcupine defense called a mobile maritime defense in Asia.
0: Um, I want to get to uh, both of those uh, in in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors uh, our technology coverage, and L3Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Um, I want to, how, just uh, very briefly, Harlan, how do we need to think Uh, about conflict, Uh, our adversaries are proving to be a little bit more adept at this uh, than we are, right? I mean, almost everything, as we're seeing here in the Russia-Ukraine crisis, we want to avert crisis, avert conflict. Uh, And that, as Henry Kissinger uh, has, has said, right, leaves, you know, when you take force off the table, it leaves the field uh, to those who are willing actually to be a little bit bolder in, in, in what they want to accomplish, right? I mean, they may be more interested in using force uh, than, than you are. Um, ultimately, uh, it looks like Russia is going to invade Ukraine. And if I was Vladimir Putin, I'd go all the way to Kiev for no other point than to underscore that I can. How, is, uh, how should we be looking at these seven disruptors, as you note, and what that tells us about what the nature of future conflict is going to be, um, because unless you have an idea of what the game, what game you're really playing, you can't really play it effectively. And our adversaries are changing the game on us. What's, how is the game changing? How do we need to think about this game if we're going to counter it?
1: If you go back to 1999, an unrestricted war by two PLA Air Force colonels, The nature of their strategy was purely disruption. What they want to do is prevent us to do what we want to do. In fact, this was the basis of shock and awe as I originally conceived it along with other people in 1995. The Gerasimov doctrine is very similar to this. So what we have to understand, uh, not only does warfare extend to the five dimensions that we know of air, land, sea, space, and cyber, but there's a sixth dimension, which is intellectual. And that's where we're most efficient. Our strategy must be to counter the enemy strategy of disruption. And how do we do that? We out disrupt them. Now, it seems to me the larger issue is, first of all, putting in place the national facilities to deal with disruption. What are we doing about the next pandemic? What have we learned from that?
0: Right. I mean, you're saying what we learn for the next pandemic, right? I mean, there are those who would make the criticism. We aren't even learning from the pandemic that we're in. On how to Absolutely. Counter- and, and, and that's the problem.
1: If you take a look at the seven disruptors, we don't have a cyber strategy. We don't have a social media strategy. We have minimal uh, regulations on drones. All these things are going to become huge problems in the future, which we have to start to anticipate now. We're not going to come up with instant solutions. But unless we look at these things more broadly and then see defense as part of this, we're always going to be reactive. And that's one of the advantages that Putin have. I don't believe he's going to invade uh, Ukraine because it's too difficult, too expensive. But the fact of the matter is he has the initiative and we're not doing anything to take that initiative away from him. And so we need an entirely new intellectual framework that's not constrained uh, by the past that has far greater knowledge and understanding of the other. For example, nobody wants to talk about the weaknesses of China or Russia. We want to talk about what we think are their strengths and we exaggerate them. I think one of the reasons why the White House is predicting an imminent invasion of Ukraine is in in compensation for the huge blunder it made in the Afghan withdrawal. And so therefore it doesn't want to get caught short. But I don't think it has the full understanding of what is motivating Putin, uh, what his concessions might be and what his exit strategies are. So there needs to be a, a new intellectual dimension, which of course, as you know, the only thing more difficult than changing minds is getting rid of old ideas. And so there's a huge intellectual problem we face. And when you have failed and failing government and a divided nation, when one person says A and the other person says, hell no, it's very difficult to do that. But unless we can address these very formidable issues, I'm afraid the United States is always going to be playing from a reactive hand. And that's not good.
0: Um, I I would uh, point out that you put your finger, you've hit the nail right on the head in that uh, right? I mean, the Russian uh, phrase that the most important uh, strategic terrain is the eight inches between your ears, right? Uh, which is where the Russians tend uh, to focus uh, all of their efforts uh, and their actions, whether it's cyber and myths and disinformation, uh, as, as well as the rhetoric uh, that, uh, that they uh, issue. Um, how, Harlan, do you address the challenge of domestic political division, uh, the tribalism, um, I mean, it's astonishing to me how many tens of millions of Americans are uh, miss and disinformed about uh, the outcome of the 2020 election, what happened on January 6. Indeed, uh, all members of the Republican Party who want to retain their seats in Congress uh, are going along with all of these fictions, uh, you know, wanting to preserve their seats, perhaps not fully recognizing how badly they're damaging American democracy ultimately. How How do you, address any of these challenges that you have rightly identified, if actually the people who are involved in the ecosystem, at least half of them might not be interested in any solution, rather the hopes that in 2022, they regain power such that they can make changing the power structure even more difficult. I mean, ultimately, how do you do this look- when half the population? or half the political population may not be interested in change.
1: The most most frightening conclusion I draw in the book has nothing to do with China and Russia, but it's this. I do not believe that the constitution of the United States drafted by the best minds of the 18th century or arguably any century is any longer fit for purpose in the 21st century. And the reason is that checks and balances only work If one party has complete control of both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue and five votes on the Supreme Court, or there's consensus, civility, or a crisis to rally the nation such as Pearl Harbor. None of those, none of those situations exist. And so we have to realize it is our constitution that's at great risk. And unless or until we do, we're not going to be able to motivate, I think, sufficient change in our political system. But having said that, I come up with a couple of fixes. First, We need to make fundamental changes in the organization of Congress, including a national security committee that will meet with the National Security Council of the White House, so that when we become engaged in crises, Congress is engaged in the takeoff as well as landing. There needs to be closer coordination. Second, and this may sound silly, before any member of Congress votes on a bill, they have to swear or affirm that they have read and understood that legislation. People in Congress can say, that's ridiculous. How can I read a 4,000 page bill before I vote on it? They should not be in Congress. And while that may seem to be a silly requirement, I guarantee you that's gonna clear heads. And in the interim, that's one of the best steps that we can possibly take. Will Congress have the courage to do that? I doubt that, but make no mistake, failed and failing government is the biggest crisis we face. And unless or until we can face up to that, uh, it's gonna be very, very heavy going. And quite frankly, well, there is no guarantee that this is going to happen. Now, I don't believe we're going to follow the fate of the Soviet Union and implode, but on the current trajectory, I guarantee you that standards of living for the majority of Americans are going to decline and the notion of the American dream is going to turn more into the American nightmare. Because in addition to this, not only, not only do people who really want to even take up arms have the constitution on their side. The Declaration of Independence states in its most trenchant line, when government becomes destructive, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and establish a new one. And some people are gonna say, if it was good enough for the founding fathers, it's good enough for me. And that is just going to exacerbate our position and our situation. So I'm pessimistic about the future simply because the constitution as drafted is not able to deal with the specific problems that we're facing. And as the nation continues to be divided and I see it only becoming more divided, unless we take a couple of these steps, uh, standards of living are gonna decline for the majority of people. And at some stage that's gonna promote some sort of change whether a revolution or violence or even a transition to what America should be remain to be seen.
0: Cynic would say uh, that there are those forces who've been trying to make sure that government fails in order to be able to, uh, right? I mean, the the more you hobble the ability of the government to perform, the more you can run against uh, the government's ability to perform. uh, And then you can realize uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy, a cynic would observe. Very briefly, talk about porcupine defense and how it applies uh, to both. And then I have a will uh, question, because ultimately, Deterrence is about will. Your adversary has to be convinced that you are willing uh, to sacrifice and to take steps at risk to yourself in order to be able to deter them. It doesn't work when you're consistently seen as empty rhetoric. And I fear that that's exactly where we are with Russia over a long period of time, just as, as much as I believe that we may be there in terms of China. We may think we're saying the right things, but we're not saying the things that are going to deter them. Talk about porcupine defense. And whether or not deterrence is possible without the will to actually use sure. force at some point or 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 be willing to accept pain, uh, because certainly Putin is willing to expe- ex- accept plenty of pain to achieve what he wants to do, which is assert uh, his authority across the former so- uh, uh, one Soviet republic after another.
1: Porcupine defense is well spelled out in columns I've written and obviously in the Fifth Horseman. In essence, it's a strategy of disruption. It's gonna use thousands of drones, UAVs of all sorts, sea, air, land, and space. It's gonna use disinformation systems, misinformation systems, electronic systems to deceive. And the idea is to attack the enemy strategy, to break it up. It can be done without big platforms. And I think it can be done something on the order of $600 billion a year, and does not require 1.4 million people in active duty, which we cannot afford. Uh, The more money we spend on defense, the force gets smaller. So porcupine defense, and its variant in Asia mobile mobile maritime defense, which would be to keep China within the first island chain uh, is is really highly recommended. But of course, it's gotta break all the sacred cows and legacy systems in which we're spending the bulk of our money. About deterrence, I think deterrence is a 20th century Cold War term that does not exist in nature outside the very narrowly defined uh, nuclear, thermonuclear issues. We're not gonna deter Putin from Ukraine, no matter what we say. We're not gonna deter China and only in the last resort are you gonna use force. So I don't think this is a question so much of will. It's a question of intelligence and how we put in play the strategies and policies to deal with what the other guys are doing. We've laid it too long in Ukraine, for example. What we should be saying to Russia is, look, if you go into Ukraine, NATO will do exactly what you don't want it to do. We're going to expand. Sweden, Finland, we'll talk to Ukraine, we'll talk to Georgia, we're gonna spend a hell of a lot more money. And if you don't like Aegis Ashore in Poland and in in Romania, you're not gonna like what follows. We haven't done that. And we haven't been clever saying to Putin, what concessions are you prepared to give up? If we look at his demands going back to 1997, it turns out that the Russians will give up an awful lot like taking missiles out of Kaliningrad or by removing forces from places where they didn't have forces in 1997, like Ukraine, like Georgia and Moldova. Now, whether that can work or not, but we took the opposite tack. We said, hell no on NATO, instead of saying, how can we deal with the Russians in an intellectual way? Those are my solutions, Vago. Deterrence is overstated. It needs to be replaced by good sound thinking that's based on disruption and preventing and disrupting the other side. And we need to look at new strategies because quite frankly, we cannot afford the current force posture and strategy the Pentagon has, uh, we're spending our way to oblivion. And as other people have noted, the more we spend, the smaller, the less capable the force gets.
0: Um, Let me ask you uh, very briefly, uh, your 10 previous books uh, were uh, not written as fiction. Obviously, you start this off with uh, a fictional American president in 2029 and Barrett Jackson. Why did you decide to go a fictional route in, in sort of setting the narrative of this book, uh, compared with sort of the the hard uh, uh, history style of your of your past works,
1: because in the three years that elapsed between this book and Anatomy of Failure, why America loses every war it starts, the situation has coalesced and becoming a lot worse. Certainly in terms of failed and failing government, and I want to give the reader an idea what it's going to be like in 2029, and contingencies that are not so far out of the question. And indeed, I close with the question and. In, this, in the first part of the book about the president when she's taking office in 2029. Did anybody believe anything was going to happen uh, in, as 2020 emerged with the death of George Floyd, with the pandemic and with all the other things that have become so disruptive? Uh, the future that I posit is indeed possible and it's meant to shock and awe the reader so that I get his or her attention to go through the rest of the book and then arrive at my conclusions about what we can do to fix this mess.
0: Harlan, uh, certainly uh, bracing and, as always, uh, thought-provoking. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time and joining us today. Uh, You're always welcome back. Always love having you on the program. Thanks very much, and uh, best of luck with the book, Uh, and I hope that certainly uh, folks who heard about it today uh, will check it out. Thanks so much.
1: Mago, thank you very much.